Welcome to the CSUN podcast. CSUN stands for Southeast Asian American Sons. This is the show for exploring the experiences of Southeast Asian Americans through the lens of two Southeast Asian American sons. I am one of your hosts, Yang Lor, and my other host is Jason or JN. All right, Jason, um, this is the our third episode of the podcast. So it seems like we we're making progress. We've been consistent. <laughs> um, let's do a regular check-in. How have you been? And anything come up that might be uh, relevant for us to talk about? Yeah, I'm doing good. I, you know, it's uh, July now, so we just had Fourth of July, and it's another day where it's summer, so staying warm. And uh, it's not too hot though in the Bay Area where I'm based. So something I heard is that you had a book talk over in Sacramento. So congratulations on your book again. And uh, now that you had a talk, curious what it was about and uh, uh, what is your book about as well? Yeah, I'm curious why you weren't there, Jason. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mostly publicize on Facebook and that's the issue about Today's society is that, you know, um, if people decide to uh, get out of Facebook, then sometimes sever some sort of connections. Um, So I have to do a better job uh, of promoting (laughs) uh, events or just people in general have to think about uh, finding other ways to promote outside of social media. Because, you know, folks that decide to opt out of social media, they still want to be involved. Uh, But, you know, if we rely exclusively on social media, then we're losing uh, so many people, including our friends like Jason here. Uh, so my book talk was about my book. I came out with the my first uh, ever book published by Rutgers University. This book mm-hmm. is entitled Unequal Choices, How Social Class Shapes Where High Achieving Students Apply to College. It's based on my dissertation that I, uh, research that I did to get my PhD. Um, so it's a book about how students apply to college. And so I look at working class and um, low-income students versus their middle-class peers to see how they apply to college. So these are students that are, you know, these are, these are super high achievers and they have a very high SAT scores. They're often top of the class. Um, but a lot of research in the past has shown that if you are working class or low-income, you typically don't apply to the top colleges. So my book is a, an attempt to better understand why this is the case. So it's a book about how people make decisions and how they're experiences, their information, and their social networks all influence them and in, in, in their choices. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a good turnout. A lot of family members and friends from high school, from college, uh, came up uh, and showed up. And so we had a great conversation just about you know, what can we do to prepare our kids um, for future success. So your book, I saw it. I got a copy now. So thank you for that uh, autographed. So one of the the few, I think. Uh, so recently in the news as well is the Supreme Court ruling on, you could almost say it's on affirmative action, although it doesn't strike it down completely. What it does, uh, what people are commenting on is that it guts it. So a lot of what universities base some of their criteria when they admit students is what people term as race-based. So what that means is sometimes they consider that in their admission. So the Supreme Court recently made a decision based on uh, the 14th Amendment about the Equal Rights Clause. So there's a lot of legal leans about what has happened. I was curious about what your book might how it might relate in terms of the ruling and maybe what your thoughts are based on either your role as an academic and at a university or just your personal opinion. My book really tackles the issue of inequality. So um, it really brings to light the issue of how uh, children who are born into middle-class families. So if you were born into a family where at least one or both of your parents are college educated, you have a very different um, educational experience system. You have much more resources to help you get the competitive credentials to get into the top colleges. Whereas if you are low income or working class, you have less of those resources. Um, and so my book is really an attempt to help colleges, universities, high schools understand that sometimes it's unfair to just look at what people have accomplished. Um, because if we only evaluate students based on their accomplishment, we don't take into account what resources they have at their disposal, or what type of barriers they had to overcome to get to that point, uh, to get to that point in their lives, and I think it's relevant to the question about affirmative action, about 
How should we evaluate college applicants? Is it merely based on what they've accomplished or should we take into account other factors that give us a more comprehensive understanding of who these applicants are? Um, and I think traditionally, uh, people were often, students were often evaluated based on SAT scores, based on extracurriculars, based on their grades. But I think over time, more and more universities are opting for a much more holistic or comprehensive review where they actually take into account uh, people's lived experiences, uh, the amount of barriers or resources that, that they have at their disposal. Um, and, and I don't follow affirmative actions ruling uh, closely, but I do know that here in California, with the passage of Proposition 209, we've already outlawed the use of race uh, in, in college admissions for quite a while. And uh, when that law was passed, um, it actually had a severe impact on the admissions, but also enrollment of non-Asian minority students. And so we're trying to recover. And I think uh, many of the universities have tried to uh, implement uh, new strategies to be able to uh, be able to recruit and retain uh, more non-Asian uh, students of color. I think as a researcher, for me, I, I try to kind of present different perspectives and um, encourage students to uh, understand and kind of to make their own decisions. I think sometimes it's easy as a sociologist to say, this is the only way to think about it. So on the one hand, some uh, Asian American groups, um, particularly East Asian Americans, often believe that they're being uh, penalized for being Asian Americans uh, if we take into account race. But on the other hand, um, if we think about the issue of race, if we think about, you know, this podcast is about Southeast Asian Americans. So, you know, you know, if Southeast Asian Americans are characterized as, as Asian Americans, I mean, their ethnicity is not taken into account uh, one could argue that they're pe being penalized for being perceived as Asian American and not as, as Southeast Asian American. There's multiple perspectives to it. Researchers are in support of, of affirmative action because it makes the, the experiences of what it means to be Southeast Asian American visible because Southeast Asian American have less resources. Um, but that's kind of my, my take on it. What are your thoughts on it? I teach at a community college and they released a statement as well uh, once it was released. And a lot of Different people I follow, either nonprofit groups or different uh, community orgs that are race-based, I guess you could say, chimed in. So they all made statements. A lot of them had the same kind of reaction, basically that um, racism still exists. So this is something that kind of helps offset it in a power structure in that college admissions and such might have a lot of determination uh, for where people go uh, in life. So I would say a lot of the dialogue, though, in California, at least, regarding this decision by the Supreme Court was based on the idea that it's necessary to do this, kind of like on your point about considering other groups when everything else being equal. So it's almost worthwhile to do that. But in another sense, you might almost say that does it legalize discrimination? And I would say it's like a loaded word because like discrimination itself, uh, it is, it has negative connotations and it's not something that you want to utilize with state power and things like that. So if you say discrimination, then it's more than anything wrong. But if you say, do you take in other factors when you determine who you bring into your student population. <laughs> so you could almost say that's a form of discrimination, but it's not necessarily the same thing. Because if you look at what discrimination is, it would be the idea that you're holding a feature of someone against them. Whereas if you're using, let's say, traits or conditions that affect people, then you're factoring that in. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's a very complicated issue because it deals with, you know, what are what are what's the purpose of a college? Is it just to select the most highly qualified students? Is it to select a group of students that can contribute to the greater good of the overall community, the learning community? What role does diversity play? Um, so there's questions about what what is it that college should be looking for in a student body? So not necessarily a particular student, but in an incoming student body. But there's also conversations that need to be had about why affirmative action was even started in the first place. And I think there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, people often um, stop at the point about should we consider race or not? And that's a very, it's like a simple 
but also a very complex question because you talk to most people, if you ask that question, people will say, yes, race should not be a consideration um, because it's, yeah, we, we want everybody to be treated equally, but to be treated equally is to be, uh, to also acknowledge that people are, are not are at the same starting point. Um, but it's a, it's a much complex conversation that I think is could take multiple episodes. Um, but that's, I think it's great that we brought up to share our perspectives um, because I think it's relevant for Southeast Asian American as well. All right. So with that thought, we're going to shift on over to the topic for our conversation today. So we are going to be discussing our thoughts on this book. Uh, the title is Ethnic Origins, The Adaptation of Cambodian and Hmong Refugees in Four American Cities by Jeremy Hine, who is a sociologist. So I chose this book. I'm a sociologist. I used to teach a course on Southeast Asian American experience. Uh, several years ago at Sacramento State University that talks about two Southeast Asian American groups, and it's a very comparative analysis. So unlike our previous two episodes where we read uh, The Late Homecomer, which was about the Hmong American experience, and then we watched a film, A.K. Don Bonus, about the Cambodian American refugee uh, experience, uh, today's text is much more academic, more analytical, at the end, after we discuss this book, who is this book for? But this episode is essentially just a summary, a comparison of the two groups that we've talked about before, Hmong American and Cambodian American. So uh, this book looks at how the history and culture of these two groups, Cambodian refugees and Hmong refugees, how their history and culture shape their ethnic identity, like how, what, how they think about what it means to be Hmong or what's it, what it means to be American, uh, and how this ethnic identity uh, influence their adaptation to life in the U.S. And it focuses specifically on four cities, okay? So two cities for Cambodian American, a small town and a large city, the, uh, the same for Hmong American as well. Um, and so it looks at Eau Claire, Wisconsin for the small town experience for Hmong Americans. It looks at Rochester, Minnesota for the small town experience for Cambodian Americans. And then for the large city experience, um, it looks at Chicago, Illinois uh, for Cambodians uh, and then for uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin for Hmong Americans. Uh, so this book, yeah, it's very dense, um, well, many, many chapters that looks at um, history, culture, ethnic identity, uh, you know, how they think about this label of Asian American, what's their thoughts about citizenship, um, how they were able to form communities in these different towns and cities. Um, what type of racial hostility did they experience in a small town versus a large city and how they mobilize in the face of wealth and reform? Um, so there's a lot, a lot of things to, to kind of unravel and discuss. Um, and so uh, we're not going to be able to touch upon all of it. But for this podcast, we have some thoughts that we think are relevant to uh, Southeast Asian Americans that are interesting for us, but also for our audience as well. Um, so with that summary, Jason, uh, take it away. What are some of your thoughts about this, this text? Um, and then I can share my thoughts afterwards as well. Sure. Uh, I thought uh, maybe you can define what he terms ethnic origins and what it, the meaning is. It sounds like a lot of the framing of the book itself and everything that proceeds after the introduction is really based on his idea. Or is it an idea that exists already in sociology? The reason why it's termed ethnic origins is I think he's trying to shift the conversation a little bit. Um, when we talk about immigrant adaptation in America, we often focus on like the history. What's the history prior to arriving in the U.S.? What's their pre-migration context? Where are they coming from? How is their life like? Uh, were they escaping war? Are they immigrants? Um, were, are they come? Do, do they come from the city? Do they come from uh, a rural region? But I think Jeremy Hines try, is trying to introduce the issue of culture, how our ethnic identity, how we think about ourselves. So ethnic origins just references kind of what is it about their culture and their history that influence how they think about themselves. Um, and so it's trying to trying to help us understand who, how Hmong and Cambodians think about themselves and American society based on their previous history, but also their culture um, as well. Um, so mm. I think that's what the understanding of ethnic origins in this book is really about, and understanding the cultural aspect of the historical aspect and how these two are essential to one's identity. It's a simple enough term. I don't think I've heard of it articulated in this way before, but it makes a lot of sense once I heard it and the way it was 
being thought of. It took me a couple of times to understand exactly what he meant. But my basic understanding is a lot of the circumstances based on the conditions of their home countries of Hmong people in Laos and then the Cambodian people in Cambodia depended on how other countries around them influenced them. What I mean is the Vietnam War affected both countries, that is Laos and Cambodia, in different ways. And then it affected different populations in different ways. So you could say the more rural or uneducated population in Cambodia were disproportionately affected by, let's say, the secret bombings from Nixon during the Vietnam War. Uh, they were targeting the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And then as far as the Hmong population, they were affected by the CIA's involvement in Laos. So to readers or people that are new to this topic, they might uh, not understand exact conditions. But I think the next part that makes a lot more sense is the idea of same policies that affect these groups. So to really break it down, it's different circumstances, same policies. So what that means then is the refugee experience is different for the different people, but the settling of the different refugees is mostly the same. That is different policies from different power structures, either federal government or local government, were essentially placing these refugees in similar programs. So that is one reason why a lot of refugees might be in lower income communities and are on government assistance to a certain amount, but then taken off, but then also told to be part of society in certain ways. And the idea of ethnic origins then would be how these different groups then adapt to their local environment. I think it's great that you gave that summary just about you know what's similar about their experience. So of course, they're, they're both refugees, um, but they're refugees that are coming into the U.S. with different contexts, um, different understanding, different history. Um, but once in the U.S., they have very similar experience in terms of the, the resettling of refugees. Um, you know, the book has a two small towns. Typically, refugees are often in small towns. The organizational infrastructure is often not there to support refugees. But you do have a lot of churches, a lot of religious organizations. And so that's the reason why uh, many refugees, Southeast Asian refugees, were placed into small towns. Um, it's because of the religious communities in those towns. Uh, that agree to resettle these refugees. And then um, for the bigger cities, the hope is that they are there's much more organizational infrastructure there uh, to support these uh, to put, support these refugees. Let's talk about that the point about ethnic origins because I think you you bring up a good point about like what matters the most? Is it about the 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 identity, the culture, or is it about the circumstances in the u s? um or or maybe it's not a debate about which matters more, but it's really about how they each reinforce each other. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of, as we think about Southeast Asian American experience, you know, should we pay more attention to the, to the circumstances that they encounter in America? Um, or should we pay more attention to kind of the circumstances that led them to the U.S. or the ethnic identity? On a second reading of the book, uh, something I missed was uh, something he said about the Hmong people. He said something like, the argument falls apart if you try to weigh what happened when the Hmong people fled China opposed to the CIA's involvement in Laos. And then to me, that really stood out because I'm like, wait a minute, are you trying to absolve the influence of colonialism? Or do you actually think from like maybe a scientific standpoint that um, they are equal as far as influence? And I don't know, maybe it's just my place in history where I, you know, current present day that I think that the most recent thing that happened to Hmong people was directly affecting them being here. So I don't think it's logical that Hmong people leave China, go to Laos, and then they go to the U.S. <laughs> I think there's a, a direct influence that leads them directly here. So um, the fact that he said that, I think maybe was trying to um, scapegoat or like try to dismiss it overall. But 
I guess on another note, I always think it has to do with circumstances, uh, material um, conditions that people make decisions. So the fact that at least with Cambodians, they had to flee Cambodia was because their livelihood and their whole world was disrupted. So the only way out was escape. There were people that were forced back from the refugee camps to return to their homes, uh, whatever was left of it. And those are probably the people you would run into if you visit Cambodia today. And it's interesting then to compare who makes up the Cambodian population in Cambodia now and the Cambodian Americans that have escaped. You could almost tell the difference just because of the way people think and behave. So I would say that a lot of what still keeps us together is just the idea of the possibility of what Cambodia can be. But I would say there's a disconnect of the Cambodian American population, especially if you're second generation, and then the population that had to return and still uh, developing there. So I think overall, the main idea is that there are things that people, the people that were affected by their circumstances, they have hopes and dreams, but the way it becomes feasible is different depending on where they are. Of course, it's important to be critical, but you know, as a sociologist, I tend to buy some, much of his ideas just about how ethnicity interacts with current circumstances to shape uh, people's behavior. So in one of the chapters, he actually talks about how Hmong and Cambodian refugees respond to the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. So in that specific um, act, it made refugees who are not citizens ineligible for social security or for welfare. And so how Cambodians among responded, the author argue depends largely kind of, of their on the history and, and their identity. And so he argues that Hmong Americans mobilized in greater force in response to welfare reform, whereas you know Cambodian refugees were much more ambivalent about the government's action. And his argument, I mean this argument has also been used elsewhere uh, by other Hmong scholars as well, is that Hmong people have a sense of an entitlement um, about being in this country um, because they have a very particular history. Their history is, even though they're refugees like Cambodians, they have a very different history in that in Laos, they were actually recruited by the CIA. And the CIA apparently made promises that if the war was lost and Hmong were persecuted, the U.S. would take care of Hmong people. And so Hmong people come into this country with that understanding that they've been wronged, that the U.S. is responsible for their plight in this country. Um, and so when the U.S. government decided to make refugees ineligible, Hmong people collectively mobilized because they saw that as an injustice against them. The only reason they're here in this country was because the CIA recruited them. And so they actually blamed the government. Therefore, they were able to mobilize and fight aggressively to make sure that they were exempt. Um, and they were eventually actually exempt uh, from the Welfare Reform Act. Uh, even though they're refugees, they're not citizens, they were still eligible for benefits. Um, and so the, the author, Jeremy Hine, makes the case that Hmong people were much more likely to mobilize, whereas Cambodians were much more ambivalent. And even though they tried to um, you know, fight it, the, the, the effort was not as collective or it wasn't a consensus. Um, I'm not sure what, what are your thoughts are, uh, about that. Um, but the the part about the Hmong people, I've seen other people make the argument as well. Uh, my friend, uh, may, he has a very good book um, about Hmong refugee experience, how Hmong people have this military frame when they, when they talk about their experience coming to America, they feel like they uh, are owed something by the U.S. And so if the U.S. cuts them from programs or if they want to advocate for funding, they're able to bring that up that, you know, we deserve this because we sacrificed on behalf of the CIA in the past. And so it makes them easier for them to be more involved in the political process because they have this narrative, this story that really inspires them. But it, it makes them um, feel entitled uh, that they deserve something. And I think that's a very important mindset to have is I think for a lot of refugees, Sometimes there's this thought that we were brought here and so we should be thankful. Mm. I mean, I think and according to some of the research that I read about Hmong people, of course, that they're thankful, but they also feel like they need more. To, they need more support because of what they had to overcome to come to this country. 
um, as a result of their involvement on behalf of the CIA. That's a really good point in the book too that I uh, liked a lot. The thing about an academic book, there is research. So that's one thing to be thankful for is just some of the research that goes into this. So it's not just someone with an opinion and talking about it. It's actually looking into data. So that's what's great about the book. And I think this point really is important uh, like you mentioned, because it shows the differences between the two groups where I guess one way you could say it's entitlement, but it's kind of like um, they paid their dues. You know, they already yeah. committed <laughs> what they said they were going to do. So it was just the U.S. following up on what they were saying they were going to do. Um, I think the Cambodian mindset is actually actual uh, accurate in this case because I think a lot of Cambodians do kind of put it on themselves when something bad happens. Mm. I, I don't know if it's a cultural thing or it comes from something quite deep-rooted in Cambodian people, I think, from the home country. The idea that if something bad happens, it's because you did something bad or anything that kind of happens, it's a reflection on you. So the fact that this policy went away... It's more of um, maybe a victim mentality where it's like, okay, well, this happened, so I need to find a way to respond to it. Where the, the Hmong community was like, okay, we're going to fight back. <laughs> so it almost didn't seem like an option for Cambodian people. And that could have been because of the culture Cambodian people have as far as um, dealing with things uh, very interpersonally or personally or individualistically. Yeah. I think this is an, uh, an instance where um, uh, culture plays a role, but also the history as well. As mm -hmm. we think about why Hmong respond that way to the Wilfram Reform Act is, you know, Hmong culture is based on ancestor worships, shamanism, the belief in that if you provide for your ancestors, then you get blessings. And so if you suffer a misfortune, then you have to um, you know, you need a shaman to communicate with the spirit word under, to see what's going on. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think if the author is making a case about culture, then Hmong culture, just like Cambodian culture, is it's really about a personal failure on your part that's causing you, you misfortune. Um, but this is the part where I think history also matters, because as I mentioned, the recruitment of Hmong by the CIA gives them a different frame, a different way of thinking about their situation. Um Perhaps in the Cambodian case, it might be seen as uh, a personal failure in that you you've been here for several years. You should have become a citizen. And I think oftentimes that's the, the, the blame the victim mentality. It's like, well, yes, there's a new law, but just become a citizen or you should have become a citizen in the first place so that you don't have to suffer these uh, misfortunes. I think in the Hmong case, of course, there's also, there's people who would say that as well, that yes, just uh, get off of warfare. But the, the fact remains that because of that history, yeah, so Hmong has, yeah, Hmong have their own culture, but the, the recent history is the CIA involvement, the recruitment of Hmong people. And I think that gives them like an extra motivation. And when I say sense of entitlement, I, I teach a class on like a uh, social class and I show how like middle-class students have a mm -hmm. sense of entitlement. And I ask my student, so when I say entitlement, does it have a negative or positive connotation? And most of them will say a negative connotation because it means you're spoiled. And then I tell them, here it actually is much more of a neutral understanding. Like you feel like you are, you feel like you can change something. Um, so I think when we think about entitlement, it, it, it often feels like I deserve something, but it's also that the belief that I can change something, um, that something is is changeable. Um, because to request something, you have to believe that it's it's changeable, that it can be modified. Um, and so that's a, a amount of confidence that a group needs or an individual needs to be able to, to confront that. But yeah, I think it's a very interesting comparison of the two groups and how they respond to this specific situation. And it might be about culture, it might be history, uh, or it might be just about the current circumstances. Um, but I think it's up to us, but also the author or the researcher to make a uh, a case about what is the most important factor in shaping this response. Another point on this that relates to culture is religion for Cambodian people. Cambodian beliefs are built upon each other. So in the beginning, before there was organized religion, a lot of it was animalistic. So worshiping different types of animal gods and locations like spirit gods and things like that. And what happened afterwards was when the influence of Buddhism, well, it, before Buddhism, there was Brahmanism, which is a lot of, you can still see it today with uh, kind of maybe the hierarchy with age. 
and maybe class, where a lot of people might occupy different roles, but they kind of treat it a little differently or maybe spoken of differently. You see this a lot with monks. So when you speak to monks, you, you use different terms to address them. It always confused me, and it still does. It's almost like it's disrespectful if you call someone you, that's a monk, whereas like to any ordinary person. And I understand it in that, you know, they are doing something very spiritual. So you have to acknowledge it in that way. And one way you kind of embrace the spirituality of others is by using different terms and things. So there is a logic to it, but it does create these distinctions that almost seem artificial because you place certain importance on different roles. Um, so that's one side of it, uh, the religion aspect. But the one thing that the author really uh, highlights, that's something I, I maybe thought about before, but you don't realize something until someone else kind of sees it from a different uh, viewpoint. And I think one thing that happened in this book was the idea of merit. So in Buddhism, at least in Cambodian Buddhism, I think it's very specific. So I'll call it Cambodian Buddhism, even though it's technically one of the branches of um, Buddhism. But anyways, uh, the idea of one, what that means technically is merit. So a lot of times, um, Cambodians have a lot of bun where they would collect merit. And they associate that with, let's say, deeds being good. So I have a personal conflict with that in that a lot of times you are offsetting good deeds with more worship. So it's almost too extreme of a definition but that's kind of almost how I view it, where a lot of maybe elders do a lot of the ceremonies because to them, that's how they gain more merit. And that's uh, not the way I think. So for me, it's a little bit more about um, personal achievements. Uh, however, I think we're attempting to achieve the same goals, but maybe in different ways. Another point in this is the idea of how people maybe come to think of it this way or maybe practice it so much. So I don't know if I get in trouble saying this, but, you know, Karl Marx said uh, religion is uh, opium for the masses. And a lot of people take that out of context. They're thinking, oh, you know, they need to like um, self-medicate or this and that. And we're talking about conditions. The idea behind that quote is that if people's conditions or if their needs aren't being met they'll turn to a belief system they'll turn to something like religion where if they can't get it in this life they'll look for it in the next life that's how i understand that quote and without going into any politi specific political ideology i think that is how people or at least Cambodians, being affected by their circumstances kind of think about life they think bad things have happened and the only way to really change things is by believing more in um, a power outside of you that can maybe help change things. Or if it you can't have it good in this life, it'll be better in the next life. Okay, wow. There, so there's hope, but there's also acceptance. But it seems like it's very individualistic in terms of practicing it or you feel like it involves um, like multiple entities to help you live a good life. It's community oriented. So like, you know, they, you do it at the temple, you invite community members. I mean, for the most part, everyone is a believer. So you have that amount of spirituality and all that. I'm not going to take away anyone's uh, belief system because I think ultimately it helps them for the most part be good people. They all adhere to certain forms of conduct and behavior. For me, the, the point of contradiction or conflict is just the idea that you have to rely on external power to help you opposed to maybe what it is you can do yourself. And I like, again, this is a very specific way of thinking about it. It's there's much more nuance to it. It's just for me, uh, it's hard to come to terms with uh, things you can do and can't do based on what it is you believe in and things like that. That just reminds me about, um, you know, the, the argument that the author is making in the book is that Cambodian ethnicity is much more porous. Like they don't hold on strictly to like, um, group boundaries between Cambodian versus non-Cambodians. And because there's much more intermixing. And when we think about Cambodian, we're, th we're thinking about the part of the majority or dominant group in Cambodia. You have a country, you're part of a nation state. And then um, the author makes a case that for Hmong people, they have a much more uh, very collective 
um, strict sense of, uh, of, of of identity. And so you were talking a lot about kind of Cambodian religion and spirituality. Um, and so in the book, um, there's also a, a, a section about Hmong religion as well. Um, he makes this point that, that to be Hmong is to belong to a clan. And that's how collective Hmong identity is. And, and because in Hmong culture, traditional Hmong culture, you are often a representative of, of your clan. Um, your clan influenced you, you influenced the clan. And so that quote really stood out to me. It's like, to be Hmong is to belong to a clan. Uh, because people often ask you, uh, maybe nowadays it's much more modernized. So you aren't judged based on your clan as much as previously. But I do remember uh, my older siblings when they, um, especially the guys, when they go and uh, go visit girls and when they're dating, the parents of the girls will often ask him, so what clan do you belong to? Who's your clan leader? Um, because that often determines, like, you, do you come from uh, a clan with prominence or is is it a problematic clan? And in the sense that you're often judged you know, whether you are worthy or not of their daughter based on what clan you belong to. Because the clan is so essential to Hmong, traditional Hmong identity. When you are born, uh, there's a ceremony that's performed to introduce you to the clan. When you get married, your clan has to be there. Um, they perform those duties. And when there's a funeral, the clan has to be there. So many of the things, uh, practices in the rituals requires the, the clan support. And so the author makes a point that because of this, it reinforces Hmong identities. Because Hmong people are not like Cambodians in that they're from the city. And so in the city, you often have a lot of much more uh, ethnic in intermixing. Like Hmong are much more, they live in the mountain and in isolation. And so they have a much stronger sense of group identity. And so for, for the author, this influence, you know, we're talking about Southeast Asian American. Um, and so the author talks about this connection to being Asian American. And so um, he mm -hmm. makes the point that, you know, Cambodians are much more, open-minded about affiliating themselves with Asian Americans because there are connections beyond just physical similarities and physical features. Whereas Hmong people have, have a much more weaker sense of, 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 of being Asian American because yes, they see that they might look alike, but they, um, they have a much stronger sense of being a Hmong. And so it's either, it's like Hmong versus non-Hmong people. And because of that, Hmong people have a weaker attachment to these like pan-ethnic identity of let's say Southeast Asian American or, or or even Asian American. And sometimes I feel like this is to the detriment of like collaborations with other groups. Uh, I, I've seen this incident once and I'm not saying this is representative of Hmong people. Many years ago at UC Berkeley, there's a, a, a Hmong American who wrote a book about his own experience. And he came to talk at UC Berkeley and there was a Japanese American staff they're at the event as well. And so the Japanese American staff was uh, talking about what, what it meant to be Japanese and some of their experiences and barriers and prejudice and racism they face in America. Uh, and so he was implying that there's some connection. He asked a question to the Mon American and the Mon American just completely denied any similarities and by emphasizing that Mon people are very unique, that they're very different from other groups. Uh, and so I think sometimes when you have a strong sense of group identity, it can be restrictive in that it doesn't allow you to see potential similarities between you and other groups. I, I think that's something to, to, to think about is when people are so pro something, it, it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. There's no balance there. It's either you are you're not Hmong enough uh, or, or something like that. And it doesn't allow you to learn other people's culture, the history where there's actually a lot of similarities, you know, with other groups like Native Americans or um, other groups with uh, ancestor worship or, or animalism, this belief in spirits. A lot of a lot of groups actually believe in that, like a lot of some immigrant groups believe in that. But I think sometimes we're, as Hmong Americans, when we focus so much on our, our own group, it takes away from our ability to connect with others, to learn about who they are, to find those commonalities. The author terms it hermetic and porous. And I thought that was a good way to frame it, where uh, Hmong people are more hermetic, where they're kind of more enclosed, maybe isolated. And it kind of maybe reflects the conditions they were in on the mountains, like you mentioned. And Cambodians being porous, I thought that was a good way to think about it because I observed it in my own experience and what I have observed. And the way it was brought up in the book was something that I thought um, was a good way to start. So he talks about the creation myths. 
So in Cambodian creation myth, it's the idea that there was a Brahmin prince that married a, a Naga princess, which is um, a type of dragon or snake in Cambodian mythology. And that was the creation myth. That's how Cambodian people came about. But if you break it down, what the creation myth is saying is that Cambodian people are hybrid people. There was maybe an original Cambodian people, and then it intermixed with a different people. That's essentially what it's saying. And if you look at um, biological data, uh, genealogy and things like that, there is evidence for that, that there was a local population already that existed in modern-day Cambodia, and a, a different group came along and intermixed with that group. In that regard, is uh, modern-day Khmer people are a mix of people, or you could say their culture is a mix of different cultures. So in that regard, it just shows maybe a type of adaptation where in order to survive, it's just a matter of utilizing what traits other people that, that make up your population have. And that just allows you to maybe thrive in that way or sustain uh, the country. You can almost say it's a very peace way to exist. It's almost like coexistence. It's like whoever is in that region it's just the people. <laughs> it's not necessarily a type of person or things. Ultimately, though, um, as generations move forward, we kind of coalesce and speaking the same language and maybe sharing same beliefs or those beliefs get enculturated. So they all just become part of maybe one belief, even though they are made up or originally they came from different types of beliefs. So in that way, with the adaptation in the US, you could say that Survival method maintains itself because even if someone marries outside of the race or ethnicity, then they're not necessarily seen as maybe a stranger. Even though maybe they are seen that way initially, they don't necessarily continue to believe they are that way. In, in one way or another, they become part of the culture. So uh, that type of adaptation, it's like a second adaptation. Cambodians are adapting to American culture, but in, uh, in that context, when they adapt, uh, bring in other people into the culture, then that's their way of um, bringing other people in. <laughs> so it's a different way of thinking about it. Uh, because another way you could think about this is the idea of maybe um, immigration policy. A lot of small countries have ideas of quotas. Um, even here, U.S. has quotas of maybe how much they bring uh, from other countries. And some of the idea behind that is like maintaining the local population or like the type of culture that may exist in that you know, area. Um, and you could probably see this in the um, small cities. It was mentioned that a lot of these towns were actually very white for at first. And it wasn't until uh, these policies come about about resettling that they've become diversified. So I think all of those kind of play factors when we talk about immigration or, you know, refugee resettlement or diversifying the population uh, in certain areas. That leads me to my next point just about uh, resettlement. And so what happened in this country was there was this what's known as initial um, resettlement. So when refugees came to this country, they were uh, placed throughout the U.S. And the, the reasoning behind it was to help to incorporate them much faster if if you don't concentrate them in one area. And in the secondary migration step, what's happening is once refugees resettle in this country, they find where they live to be isolating. And so they decide to pack up and move to other areas where there are larger concentrations of people of their, their group. Uh, and so for Hmong people, during secondary migration, many of them moved to uh, California. California was thriving because people are moving for the weather, they're moving for... Uh, family uh, reunification, closer to the clans. Um, and so it's about ethnicities, about cultures, about religion, how that push people to kind of move um, once they have the ability and initiative to do so, to move closer to each other. Did you notice, you know, things like that for Cambodian Americans too, or this idea of a secondary migration where people are moving to be closer to family members? Or, yeah. you know, is it because of their, because their culture is much more mixed uh, or the, the way they think about ethnicity and culture is much different that there's less pressure for them to feel the need to move closer to um, to members of their own communities. Yeah, I think whenever you're so far away from home and then you're getting accustomed to another country, 
you always look for familiarity. A lot of times people that might not have known each other probably would have connected more. But ultimately, wherever the larger concentration is, is where more people would feel comfortable. A lot of times that's where you would just uh, are able to share a commonality instead of always having to reintroduce yourself and your culture and your people and explain everything all the time. It's the same reason why people feel offended when someone say, where are you from? Because a lot of times you have to always explain yourself. <laughs> so if you, the less you have to do that, the maybe more comfortable you feel, but also the more accustomed you are now to that area. And people are accustomed to you because they're, they're not so attracted to the exotic. Everything is a little bit more common when they see more familiar faces. So uh, a lot of times though, even with California, it's a lot of where the work was. So even if people resettled in, let's say Washington or something, they would go to California because that's where like agriculture is and, you know, where a lot of farming is. So a lot of uh, Cambodian then would have been in the Central Valley, uh, where my family's from, because they would have found work there where they were uneducated and a lot of the abilities they have would have just been more physical. So it would have been like picking fruit and vegetables. So, you know, very hard labor, but at the same time, that's how you find the income, but also start to make a living and, you know, actually plant some roots. So you have some... Uh, stability. That is one thing about this book. It is a very specific sample in a very specific area. So kind of my, the way I was reading it was just how does the sample the author is pulling from connect with me or does it relate? Uh, and I think a lot of points do as far as the Cambodians getting together to build temples and things like that, because a lot of times it's how they either maintain their sense of identity with cultural roots. Other people that maybe don't contribute to those things found other ways to adapt. That is, they assimilated. Essentially, they would have just found dominant culture to be more of how they can survive. So they just kind of maybe lose or dismiss as much as they can of maybe the old world and bring in more of the new world. So that. I would say maybe is a more individualistic choice because it would have been a matter of how they wanted to be part of a new society. And I think the only other point about this uh, is the idea of maybe how people moved forward after establishing these things, because the next thing would have been like families. And then the next generation, if they carry on the wishes of their parents or not, or the home country would have been very different just based on their own experience. So this is a good segue to our next part. This is a podcast about Southeast Asian American experiences. And so far, we've read a book about the Hmong American refugee, which is uh, was an autobiography. And then we watched the film, um, also similarly kind of an autobiography, but through film of, uh, of, a, of a Cambodian American refugee as well. And this is a text. This is actually a book, an academic book about that compares the experiences of Hmong and Cambodian experiences. And so for this next section, I want you to kind of share your thoughts on like, you know, after reading this book, um, how does this book contribute to a better understanding of what it means to be like Southeast Asian Americans? Like what are kind of your, your takeaway points from reading this book and how does it help you or perhaps how might it help our readers, Southeast Asians or non-Southeast Asians to un better understand uh, the experiences uh, of Southeast Asian Americans in this country? To follow the convention of the author, he talks about history, politics, and culture as being some of the points of ethnic origins. And to keep with that convention, I thought what I took away were from that same kind of notion. So as far as history, I thought his idea of hybridity was important, especially when it comes to um, Cambodian culture, just the idea of how porous it is. And then as far as politics, I think there is a lot of political thoughts, even if it doesn't always translate into action, because it's always the idea of how can you shape your world based on activity in one way or another. So I guess one way to think about this is um, home, the home country. So a lot of Cambodian refugees still think about the home country as their home, but not necessarily liking the political situation. So they'll still think of how they can affect it 
in one way or another. And also with local politics, um, maybe it, maybe because some, at least with the second generation of refugees, uh, descendant of refugees, they may not have that much tie to the home country or that much uh, influence, but they'll maybe get more involved with local politics than, or American politics, because that would be their way of uh, contributing in a political sense. And then as far as culture, I would say religion still plays a big role in a lot of Cambodian lives. So that is where a lot of sense of identity comes from, just that a lot of ritual and worship includes a lot of Cambodian-ness. So a lot of times that's how you reconnect or stay connected. It's just through the religious aspect. Beyond that, it would be speaking the language and the food and things like that. So based on those three kind of points of context, I would say that's those are some of the things I got from this book that really kind of highlights the experience in a maybe a more contextual way. Because I'm a researcher and a professor, um, I like books that are comparative in nature. That they, um, you know, they they compare multiple groups, and so um, we're not just talking about race and ethnicity for this book. They're comparing the Hmong and the Cambodian experience. But even if let's say we're talking about Cambodians, it'd be nice to talk about people that have. Uh, diverse identities, let's say like those who are poor versus those who are middle class or those who came in the first wave of the 70s versus those who came in the 90s to really understand how different identities affect how people adjust and adapt life in America. I think one of my takeaways from this book is to kind of really understand like the Southeast Asian American experience. And as I think about my own experience as well, the similarity is that these are refugees. So because of that refugee experience, um, you come into America with um, your similar experience of, of trauma, uh, of displacement, of the need to find communities. And so that's what connects a lot of the refugees. Um, but in the case of, uh, of Hmong refugees and Cambodian refugees and other Southeast Asian refugees, it's also the placement in poor communities. And so having to deal with poverty and all the issues that connect with, with poverty, whether it's gang violence or racism or discrimination uh, and things like that. And so I think there are definitely similarities that we should be attuned to when we talk about what it means to be Southeast Asian American. The refugee experience and the experience with poverty, I think, are, are two central things that really tie the Southeast Asian American experience together. I think also at the same time, we should also recognize that each of these groups have their own kind of diverse histories, uh, different histories, different culture that influence how they adapt to life uh, uh, in America. And so what I that's what I appreciate about this book is that, yes, we find a lot of things that uh, overlap between the experiences of two groups. We also find that there are you know different histories, even though they're refugees, they are refugees of different circumstances. Cambodian Americans uh, experience Khmer Rouge, which is their own countrymen, um, whereas Hmong people uh, often were fighting against uh, Vietnamese or Laotian soldier. And so it's a different type of experience uh, and how that shapes uh, their adaptation to uh, to this country. And so I think those are kind of valuable things to, to keep in mind is that even though we're, we're setting, uh, you know, where we're trying to emphasize how Southeast Asian Americans are different from Asian Americans because of their refugee experience and the poverty experience, we can um, also gloss over the, the differences that exist within these groups and how it affects their adaptation to uh, to life in America and really think about how these history and culture kind of still influence some of the things they do in, in America. And spe specifically in the case of Mon Americans, I've been very interested in why so many Mon American young people, young adults are running for and winning political elections. So here in, in California, we have a, a, a young Mon American woman that is uh, on the city council uh, and, and Sacramento, and then we have the mayor of Oakland, a major city who is of Hmong ethnicity, uh, and then up in Minnesota, where there's a large concentration of Hmong people. Uh, last I looked, there was in the state legislature, Minnesota state legislature, there was, a, I think, a panel. Um, they have the Asian American um, Lawmaker Consortium, and out of those 11, I think there were nine of them were Hmong, Hmong Americans in the Minnesota state legislature. And so um, you know, makes me think about what is it about the Hmong American experience, their culture, their history that leads them to so many people to run for election um, and to, to think that they have a chance to win, but also to have the confidence to run for election. So I think 
books like this, the the analysis gives us a little bit more than the two videos and books we read previously, which was more autobiography. Uh, this is much more historical, uh, cultural. And so I think it gives you a different a set of lens to think about the, the refugee experience. One thing that I'll mention too, uh, since you're talking about it, is that something he doesn't get into that is very specific to uh, Cambodian refugees is the idea of deportation. So that's something that's unique in a negative way for Cambodians because there is a country to deport them to, but also that country has to accept them. So you don't hear this as much, uh, at least from the Vietnamese uh, government. Uh, they don't have a deportation agreement with the U.S., whereas in uh, Cambodia, they do. And in this case, you do see this population being deported in a different amount. So this is something we'll talk about um, in another episode, but th this is something I would bring up that is maybe a unique case that does isn't, that isn't in the purview of this book. This book has its own strength, but there's things that it, it leaves out. Be, I mean, so I think that's just uh, other things for us to reference other, other texts or, or videos uh, and topics or issues to talk about in the future. All right, so now we're going to shift on over. So we've talked about the takeaway points, how this uh, text is useful for understanding the Southeast Asian American experience. Um, the, the next topic is, who is this for? So we've watched a video before. We read a book, autobiography. Those were like you know, interesting, easy to read, easy to watch. And now we encounter an academic book, something that your professor selects. So if you if you didn't go to college, this is probably not something you would you would have picked up. And so, who do you think this, this book is for, uh, Jason? For me, it's someone that already has an idea of who these people are. So they're either going to be a is it's probably going to be a Hmong person or a Cambodian person. Uh, maybe you know, most likely a second generation and someone going to college for the most part. That is, or even just like maybe curious about their culture. So it, it the person that finds this book is. First of all, they probably heard of it from somewhere else. I don't know if you just search for comparison of the two groups or just one, it'll come up. So uh, I heard about it through Yang. So that's why I picked it up and read it. And I thought it was useful for me because this is something I'm curious about and I relate to it. So something I can learn from, but also maybe uh, compare with my own experience. Um, anyone else, it could be, so first of all, if you're just curious in general, maybe you'll find it, but I would say it's really written for people from these communities, maybe specifically from the Midwest, but I think it's accessible enough for, um, the people that from come from these cultures. Uh, but also maybe you need to be a little more, let's say studied <laughs> someone who actually wants to read research and uh, understand it. Because if you read it, there are a lot of references to different studies and things. So I feel like, you know, mostly academics or scholars um, like reading things like this. But for me, it was fine. There were definitely parts that were a little more dense that I kind of just skimmed over because it was just talking about how they arrived at the data they did. Yeah, yeah. I would say the same thing as well. People who are interested in just specifically the Hmong American experience or just the Cambodian experience, you might not come across this book because yeah, I, I think we've reached a point where there are a lot of good works for each group separately. Um, and, and so it has to take a particular person who's interested in the comparative aspect um, to actually find this book. Um, but I think, yeah, I think this book is for anyone who wants to, to do more research about these, these different communities, because there's a lot of references and it gives you a framework. It gives you a perspective of, of thinking about our groups are different and similar. Um, and so if you are analytical, um, you want to do more research about Southeast Asian Americans, I would select this. Uh, I, I would encourage you to read this book uh, as an entryway to the Southeast uh, Asian American uh, experience. Um, definitely not for people who just want to do some light reading, sitting on a beach or at a poolside, because this book is, is not meant for that type of audience. It doesn't mesmerize you, uh, doesn't keep you wanting to turn to the next chapter. There is no uh, climax uh, or and things like that, but it's just very analytical. And so each chapter deals with the specific aspect of identity or politics or, or culture. Um, yeah, but it's, I, I do think it, 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 it has value to folks who want to learn more about these communities from a much more analytical, uh, academic uh, perspective. Great. 
All right. So with that, that concludes our third episode. Um, this is a comparative episode of Mona Cambodians. And um, I think it's a good conclusion to our first two episodes, which is about one about Mona American and the other about Cambodian American experience. All, all right. right. Then see you all next episode. Yes. See you next time.